Welcome to the Soulful Sound Podcast. This podcast is about celebrating the leaders, teachers, and coaches who guide fellow humans to connect, heal, and discover themselves so they can express their gifts into the world. I am Simone Niles, a coach, sound healer, vocalist, and author. Thank you for being here with me today. In this Soulful Sound conversation, I speak with Dr. Saida Desile as a counterculture creatrix, body philosopher, and advocate for sexual sovereignty. Saida has also written The Emergence of the Sensual Woman, followed by her newest book, Desire. Her innovative method has been featured in Dr. Christiane Northrup's best-selling books, Women's Wisdom, Women's Bodies, and The Secret Pleasures of Menopause, as well as in the books of Dr. Rachel Abrams, Multi-Orgasmic Woman and Bodywise. Saida is renowned for being the founder of the modern jade egg movement and visionary spokesperson for sexual sovereignty, and has created The Daring Project, a growing online membership of women from all around the world, assisting women to audaciously move from being a victim to confidently thriving in life. In this episode, Saida shares her personal healing journey, from being told that she had two weeks to live, to living a full and vibrant life. She speaks about sexual sovereignty and offers some practical first steps that you can take to reclaim yours. Saida also talks about desire, which she regards as an emerging evolutionary force in our lives to be both harnessed and trusted as our own unique compass. Join us for this juicy conversation. Sweet. So I am so excited to have joined me today, Dr. Saida Desile, and she is a body philosopher, counterculture creatrix, and advocate for sexual sovereignty. Love it. it it's such a juicy, 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 juicy line. I want to know more. So <laughs> can you break that statement down a little bit for me? So what is a body philosopher? Yes, absolutely. So body philosophy was something actually um, a student of mine called me at one point and I realized she's right because uh, a lot of what I do is somatically oriented. I have uh, a huge body of work. It's called the Desilet Method that I created years ago specifically for handling and transforming sexual trauma and then it became um you know blossomed out from there around pleasure and relationship etc there's a big body of work where i really invite people to get into their body especially their sensual sexual body but then there's all these ideas that i have these concepts these premises that actually shift our relationship to the body so the philosophy part comes of that i actually created a the art of succulent living philosophy to handle living this way because we don't understand living this way in our current society. So that's why body philosophy. I love it. And so I want to move on to the next part because this particular part is re I'm really curious about this. So counterculture creatrix. Tell me all about that. What is that? Well, it's interesting because I recently spoke at a huge event. It was uh, called Free the Feminine and there was like tens of thousands of people being streamed into the event. Um, and we had to do an intro. And that just came out of my mouth. And I realized actually it's true because what I've done, I have a, a project called the Daring Project, which is basically a community, a global community of women from around the world. 
And the ideas that we discussed there about being daring, living life on our own terms, exploring things with respect and inquiry, what I realized that started to happen is most of the things I'm standing for go against the current culture. Right. Like it's, it's sort of like um, we're going against the grain, which is actually very normal for, for my family inheritance. My father was always accused of going against the grain. He's like, it's not my fault that the grain's growing in the wrong direction. Kind of thing. <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> so that's, I, I feel like I've taken a stand in, in a lot of the premises and ideas I present. If we were to really consider them and exercise even just a portion of them, it would be a counterculture. It would be a very different culture where we could all coexist, but as sovereign beings and expressed beings. And that's very different than, you know, the current climate of woundology and victimhood and blame and shame, sure. et cetera. And I mean, it's so important for us to have that influence on the culture because it's an inside-out approach, isn't it? Um, we are influencing the culture as people, as individuals, as society. And if we don't make those shifts and changes, then the culture just stays the same. So I love that you you don't see the boundaries and the limitations that a lot of people sometimes find themselves in, and you're ready to take a stand for what you believe in. So this is this is beautiful. Um, and so the final part, you're an advocate for sexual sovereignty. So tell me all about that. <laughs> well, it has a more serious note because um, one of the things that I do is I train professionals in my methodology. So doctors, naturopaths, practitioners of various kinds that work with women. And one of the things that I realized in my body of work after two and a half decades was that there was a consistent piece that kept emerging when I was working with women, no matter what the culture was, the age, the background, the class, the skin color, it didn't matter. Right. This one thing was consistent across the board, and I named it sexual sovereignty. Now that term is being used very freely, but I named I was using this over a decade ago, and I started writing about it maybe seven years ago. Sure. And it became clear. I'm like, oh, this is what's happening. Women are actually coming home to that their body, they, this is theirs. This is their sovereign space. So sexual sovereignty implicitly means that no person, institution, or government has the right to determine what happens to your body, meaning um, who you want to make love to, how you want to handle your fertility, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the kind of sexuality you want to express. That's your domain. Not theirs. And that's important. And as I was researching this, yeah, and as I was researching this, there's nowhere yet on the planet, and I'm happy to be corrected if it does exist, but I haven't found it, where there's a constitution or a bill of rights or something like this Mm -hmm. that clearly states that a human being has the right to their own body. This was shocking to me. But it also makes sense because that's why collectively we allow slavery to still exist today. It's why we allow yes. the sex trade of children. It's, we, we don't respect the sovereign space of another individual as a collective thing, even though a majority of us, when confronted with this, will go, no, no, I do. But still, we're allowing for these things to happen. So I think collectively, sexual sovereignty as an idea is really important because it's going to open the doors to redefining what this uh, birthright is and the responsibilities that come along with having a, a sovereign space. 
That is absolutely amazing. I think that we need more people like you because, you know, you talk about not necessarily knowing whether it exists or not, but I think what I'm interested in knowing is what are some of the very practical steps that you think people can take so that as we come together as a collective, we can make that change and make that something that is, you know, vital to to us existing and cohabiting this planet. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first step always, which is a fantastic first step because it, it's an invitation to starting to have a, a deeper relationship with yourself and with your body. And I know it sounds kind of trite and simple, but it's not because we're indoctrinated culturally to be disembodied, to disassociate. Mm-hmm. We have so many traumas that take us out of body. We are taught these weird ideas. Somehow, like we use sex to sell everything. So we look on the surface like we're pro sexuality, but then there's this huge puritanical aspect to how we view sexuality. So we're getting mixed messages as we're growing up, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially young women. Sexuality is one of the only currencies that we're like given as a form of power in the world. And so we misuse our magnetism. So all of these things, they're actually indoctrinated. They're social mandates. And so by coming back to relate to ourselves as a real person and start to question, like, well, what do I think? What would I love? How do I define this and that? Now what we're doing is we're, we're a little bit pushing away those mandates and we're starting to, as a sovereign person, self-define um, our thoughts our terms of how we want to live. And this is really important. So that's the first step is just like, Hey, wait a second. How do I define things? What is my truth? Do I even have a body? What is this body? How does it work? So coming back into the body is crucial right now, especially with issues around safety and boundaries. If you're not in your body, there's no one home. If there's no one home, it's easy to abuse that home. Yes. So it's, it's crucial. Yeah. That's a very, very important part of the beginning steps of this. Yeah. And I mean, as I'm listening to you, I, you talking about people, not necessarily, um, you know, being in their body. I mean, I have a 22 almost year old daughter. And one of the questions that people often ask me is, you know, what piece of advice would you give me for my teenage daughter growing up? Because, you know, you've raised one, mine's just coming up behind you. And I said, well, when my daughter was 16, one of the things that I asked her was whether she masturbates. You know, does she pleasure herself? Because I know growing up in my generation, certainly, and I was a late start, I was a late bloomer in that field personally, that while it wasn't something that was said directly to me, it was certainly, you know, seemingly something that, you know, you're not expected to do, frowned upon by some. And so, you know, you you either did it in, in secret or, you know, those who did it was like, wow, taboo. And so for me, it was really important that I gave my daughter that straight away, that, that, you know, support and giving her the curiosity. And I don't want to use the word permission because she has to give herself that, but certainly my blessing in her exploration of herself, because there's so much to learn from that. Um, and get, as you say, coming into your body, you have to be okay with actually 
you know, expressing whatever needs to come through it. And so I think it's it's wonderful. And I and I and I have the shock on faces very often when I talk about this because they think that's the advice you're gonna give me for my daughter. And I said, absolutely, because I know the power of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree. And I actually um here's uh here's a little twist for all the parents. What you embody, what you currently like how you live your current life your sexual life is what you give to your kids. That is yep. the imprint that they get. It's it, You could say all the niceties and kind of appear like you're pro-sexuality and pro-empowerment, yep. but you're not living that. They're not going to get it. They get what you live. So yep. the number one thing I think for all parents is, is the way that I'm currently expressed myself in this realm, that which I want to pass on to my children. And if it's not, then there's an invitation to explore Absolutely. and embody more. Mm. And the second piece, yeah, and then the second piece is honor erotic innocence. Children are erotically curious, but they don't view sexuality in the same way that adults do. It's not a segregated, separate thing. It's yeah. just they're curious about their body, something feels good, and that's pretty much it. It's not pornographic. It doesn't have an agenda. It's it's pure. It's it's innocent. Yes. It's yes. It's the orientation of when I stroke the tip of my nose. Oh my god, it feels so good. When I touch my forearm, oh lovely. Oh, this other part feels really delicious. Th- these things are natural and they're meant to be. And if parents can hold the space of erotic innocence for their kids and just, yeah. you know, obviously you teach them boundaries. <laughs> My yes, parents had to go, um, <laughs> they were like, Saida, you're in the middle of a Safeway aisle. It's not the time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah. So I think there's two facets to sexual sovereignty and that that's for men, women, and children yes. and that it is a birthright, but with the right and the freedoms that come with, with having that, come responsibility. And right from the beginning, I mean, I was two or three years old. My parents were teaching me boundaries because I was very much into my body and I didn't understand the world and they did. And so those boundaries that I got at a very young age actually saved my life on multiple occasions later in life when I was a blossomed young woman and interfacing with um, unconscious people. That's great. And I know that you've been doing this work for quite some time, a couple decades now, and you've done all of your research. And I'm curious to know what ignited this vision for you in the first place. What got you on this path? Do you have a moment that you can sort of talk about where you started? Yeah, I mean, there, there's several. There's the innocent moment of being five years old, having discovered a really special spot on my body that I thought all my girlfriends should know about. So (laughs) sharing that literally in a little group circle, uh, you know, at the age of five and getting in so much trouble for it and, and thinking to myself, this person wouldn't be so angry if they hadn't knew about this spot, you know? So, so you could see already at a young age, what would be the formative Saida. But I think the moment that was a big crossroads that was kind of like the proof in the pudding kind of moment was having gone through a violent rape experience and being told that I had two weeks to live and being faced with a choice. Believe my doc 
doctor and die, defy my doctor and live. Now, in the defying of my doctor and living, that choice, choosing life, um, kind of unfurled all that which soon to, you know, became my method. And then I shared it with people. But it first started with a traumatic having the face, I'm going to die, I've got two weeks to live kind of situation to, hey, you know, I want to live. And living isn't just surviving. Living is thriving. So I was very curious not just to survive that experience, but to completely, you know, wound to power experience. Um, and, And that definitely, I think it's what also allows me to relate to, to women who've been hurt and what's important for them when they hear my story is that they can see a living example of what's possible when we choose life. And they can see that there's um, opportunity, an invitation of possibility for them to do the same. And I think that's what kind of, you know, sparked the whole journey from there. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very potent start for sure. Uh, One of the questions that I did want to ask you, actually, because a lot of my work, as you know, is around healing and connecting with self, was to know a little bit about your journey and the healing that has taken place for you so far and continues to take place. So as you mentioned, the traumatic experience that you've had, and obviously you're still here with us today, thankfully. um, What would you say got you through that experience? Because obviously you've chosen, as you said, one route was to listen to your doctor or defy and you didn't know necessarily at that point which way to go. How did that, tell me a little bit about that particular part. Yeah, that was a strong, well, imagine, I mean, I wake up from surgery, I'm told that information. And now I have two weeks to, to set my affairs straight because that's kind of the time I'm given. Um, but because I chose to live, it was like when you make a choice to heal, the next obvious step becomes obvious. And so for me, the next obvious step was leave the damn hospital. Like I had stuff all over my veins that we just, I got a a day pass and we taped all these things. I'm all like, ugh. I get on a public transit because I'm so poor. I can't even afford like anything else than like a dollar 50 to take a bus to a healer somewhere. And I get to her home. It's in a home and she's a, iridologist and an herbalist. And she looks at my eyes. She goes, Oh, you're at a crossroads. Aren't you? I said, yes. She goes, well, what are you choosing? I'm like to live. She goes, okay, let's do this. And so she gave me really powerful herbs, a big bag full. And then these empty little capsules. And I went back to the hospital because I was still, I had to be there. And I was like putting the herbs into the capsules in the hospital, you know, having the surgeon come and discover I was doing that and screaming at me, Wow. putting this stuff in my body. And I was like, Hey, look what I'm hooked up to. You you have no right to scream at me when I'm being pumped full of all these drugs. Yes. And if I'm going to die anyways, what do you care? Just let me do. These are my dying wishes is to take these silly little herby things. So go right. away. So there was an act of defiance within my spirit. And I think that's an important part of the healing journey is there will be people. The reason we're not well, the reason things are happening is usually, it's not just one cause. There's stuff around us, right? And for me, it was about a reclamation of my 
body and my space because it had been violated. Then I had a surgeon trying to violate my choices. Mm. So there was a theme of violation that was happening. And I had to constantly keep choosing life, keep choosing me. And so that's a really obvious, I think, theme in the beginning. And then the second part that happened, Simone, is I survived the two weeks and I had a huge cyst, like the size of a massive grapefruit on one side of my body and they wanted to surgically remove it. Wow. And I said, how long do you give me um, to heal this? And they said, six weeks. So I said, fine, I'll come back in six weeks. And off I went. So here's the second important part of the healing journey is I went away from everything. I went into, I, I lived on my friend's sailboat you know, on a beautiful island in Canada and had fresh air alone in this tiny space. And I didn't leave the boat till I almost like fully detoxed all the raw emotions that were moving through my system. And I remember like writing and I'd be so angry that I'd tear the page with my pen. Like I just tear it up and I'd throw the book. And then I calmed down and I was going through all these emotions. And after a few weeks of that, I felt complete. And I emerged, and I, you know, I came out of the sailboat and walking all wobbly because I'd lived for two weeks on the water <laughs> <laughs> and eventually like made my way back. So the doctor could either remove the cyst or, you know, whatever. And it was completely gone. My body had healed itself, but I wasn't focused on healing the cyst. I was well, the next obvious thing to me on that part of the journey was go away from everyone and their opinions and their this and their that and just be with this. And that was a huge part of the healing and then expression because I was screaming, I was laughing, I was crying, I was writing. Yes. I'd sleep any time of the day. I would eat whenever I was hungry. I literally lived in the moment. If I was thirsty, I would drink. If I was tired, I would sleep. Like I would just in the moment, in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. And that I feel played a crucial piece. And then the third part of the journey after that was a kind of a reconstructive part because I'd been loaded so deep, fully with so many antibiotics and things. My system was messed up and it actually took 10 years to fully recuperate from just those few weeks um, in the hospital. So that yeah. journey within that decade I dedicated myself to a deep cultivation of my sexuality and my heart. I dedicated myself to the exploration of deeper philosophy, of inquiry, of spirituality. Um, so I, I tried many things, many modalities, and some of them were great, some of them were not. But at the end of the day, I would just kind of extract the jewels that made sense for me and then yes. you know, put that on my little necklace of wisdom and would progress forward. So yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I talk a lot about steps in healing. And I think the first one for me is the same. I think very often we don't realize that we have a choice. A lot of people, you know, go into victim mode and, you know, why me, poor me, um, and not realizing that they have a choice in their healing. And by that, I don't mean that everyone who decides to live does. But it certainly starts with that step of, I choose to do this. I decide this is what's next for me. And I think that in itself is a healing because it allows you to flip that um, victimhood on its head and say, I take control of my well-being, of my life and how, I, how things unfold. Um, and 
you know, I think it's great that you were able to do that, know that straight away. And then, of course, as you said, act on it. Um, and creating the environment that supports that is so important. I think, you know, going away, um, I know that you may not have thought going on the boat was connecting with nature, but you were around water. You thought, I just need to get rid of all the stuff that's not serving me right now because I am the focus. My health is the focus. And you were able to put yourself first and thrive. So I think there's some really key you know, nuggets there to take away straight away on you about you and the things, as you said, that you've grasped from your healing journey. And then going into what do I do now? You know, you know, dedicating yourself to all the things that you wanted. And, you know, as you said, it was a long journey. So there must have been some patience in there um, amongst the frustration and life's ups and downs, you know. Um, but you had you had it very strong. That defiant spirit stood up and said, hey, I'm not going to take none of this. I am standing up for myself and taking what I want and what I know I deserve, which is amazing. And the choice that I made, it sounds r- silly, like die or live, Right. But that choice to live still today impacts my choices. And if I'm not feeling well, even today, whether it's an emotional thing or a situational thing, I will remember that choice. I'm here to live, but not just survive. I'm here to thrive. What do I need right now? And sometimes I need to shut out the world. Sometimes I need to go and have a full connection with a bunch of women friends and immerse myself in all that oxytocin. Sometimes I need to make love with my partner. Sometimes I need to get creative in my work. Whatever becomes obvious will show itself, but it's always based on a fundamental choice to, to thrive. And I think that that's a very crucial thing for people facing um, difficult choice of it's traumatic to, to be sick. It's yeah, not fun. It you yeah. can't make light of it. It's it's horrible. And yet there's uh it's like if you could imagine that you're a piece of coal and all this pressure called illness creates the diamond. And mm. so it's it, it it's like we through our deepest wounds become the most powerful versions of ourselves. And if we can understand that that is life. It's not the end result. It's the journey. It is, yeah. And sometimes a journey is really hard, but we still have choice even when it's hard. And I remember actually, Simone, looking down from the hospital at the people down below, just walking. They were rushing, you know, it was like they're rushing to their next appointment. They were rushing around. And I'm like, wow, they're not even aware of how lucky they are. Here I am dying. And they're alive and they're not even aware that they're alive and they're not even aware that they're lucky and they're not even like, they're just taking it all for granted. Hmm. I have never from that moment forward taken any of this for granted. It could end like this. And I think that's the other gift of being out of balance is to Hmm. realize the preciousness of life. Like, okay, it's a little kind of a hard way to learn it, but you learn it. And once you've learned it, it's an asset for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think what is really important about some of the things you're saying, uh, um, being present, but also when you say things show up, when you're allowing yourself to, you've made the choice and, you know, things show up and tell you what to do next. I think... um, it, it, that it's, it sounds simple, but it also takes uh, an inner knowing and a connection with yourself and a trust in that intuition, you know, that intuition, because often these things come through to people and they don't they don't actually notice. Um, what do you think 
What do you think is the key that allowed you to notice and then follow through? Yeah, I was just going to say that. So uh, I'm really glad you asked. There's an element that's important. And I don't know if it, you know, why this was true for me other than perhaps it was, you know, the, the genius of my own essence, my future self kind of reaching back into those moments going, this is important. Yes. But Simone, I never, ever thought of myself as a victim of rape. It it didn't occur to me, nor did I ever, ever put the power in the perpetrator. I didn't need anything from him or actually anyone to claim my life, to claim my healing. And I think that's really crucial and why possibly I healed so thoroughly. And it wasn't until many years later, Mm. many years later that someone said, you know, you're a victim of rape. And I went, what? Huh? Who says? <laughs> so, so here's what I want to do as a distinction so that I don't, uh, you know, uh, I might offend a few people, but I want to distinguish this. We all have victimization experiences. They're inevitable. These are out of our control and they happen. But it is a conscious choice whether our identity locks into that moment. And my identity never locked into that moment. My identity was locked into living, maybe because my situation was so extreme that that's why that happened. But I have noticed that if we adopt the identity of victim to something, Mm -hmm. then we never actually take our kind of like power back. And when we do that, then we're in the blaming, shaming and labeling game. And then it's impossible to heal thoroughly because you can't heal. Because if you were to heal, you'd have to let go of the label of of being victim. You understand? So there cannot be a complete healing. So from from victim to sovereignty is a choice. It's a journey, but it's also a choice. And if people have already identified that way, the good news is you can look at it and go, oh, I see that I did that. But now I identify with whatever it is, like being alive, being a creatrix, whatever it might be. And then uh, not ignore the pain, not avoid the pain, you know, that kind of thing, but to dive in and have a reclamation experience so that we can fully inhabit being here. I think Mm. that's, that was at the fundamental crux of, of the success of my healing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Choosing one or the other making a massive difference, victimhood or sovereignty. I love that. I love those. I love that kind of scale that you've kind of put there. You know, we can see equally both sides and how it can affect, you know, the the circumstance and the outcome. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. So I know your work. I love your work. I've, you know, we've known each other for a few, quite a few years now. And uh, we spoke about this recently, actually, how wonderful our friendship has blossomed so quickly meeting in a seminar three years ago just happened to sit next to each other um, connected straight away and you know we're just you know can't separate now it's just not possible we're connected forever now and I love the work you do and I know that um, many people see you as a guide a midwife I love that and you know a cheerleader you certainly have been a cheerleader of mine for a while which I really really appreciate um, and I'd be curious to, to have a snapshot or some 
if you can kind of paint a before and after picture of one of the clients you might have worked with, what what was the be- beginning of that journey? And obviously, they've gone through your work. And what is what is happening right now? Oh, gosh. Well, there's so many. Um, one great thing is on my YouTube channel, I actually did a mini documentary on this. And we follow awesome. three very unique women through their journey. Um, it's called A Journey to Sovereignty. So so definitely, you know, people could check that out. But I, I do want to share a story because I think stories are very impactful. Absolutely. And um, so the story goes a long time ago. This is really at the beginning of my career. So I was very new to sharing, very fresh in my own healing. And um, the community that I lived in, all the women were like, what have you done? What are you doing? Can I have some of that? So I started to run weekly classes and one of the attendees was a woman in her early seventies and she was English and she was frail and brittle and very English. (laughs) And uh, in that class, I was teaching um, many things, but I included a practice with something called the Jade egg. And so her first class, she says, we're all lying in a circle. We're covered up. It's t- totally safe. Heads towards the center. And she says, I just hear her voice because we're not seeing each other. You want me to put what? Where? <laughs> Love it. <laughs> not a bad English accent either. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, I, I do. Yes, this is what we're doing but don't feel like you have to do it. But this is the invitation. She couldn't do it, but she, it was a five week course. And I think she did at least four or five of them. Like she studied Mm. with me over a whole year and a half. She kept coming back and coming back in every class. She would be crying in tears. But at the end of that journey on that final day of her last class, she announced that she had found herself a young 50 something year old boyfriend who thought he hit the jackpot. And I was just covered in goosebumps because here's a woman a year and a half prior in her seventies, hadn't given up on sexuality years and years and years ago. And when she'd had sex, it was kind of mediocre. So what's the big thing about it anyways? Mm. And why should I bother? I'm an elder going through the confrontation of having a feminine body, of having emotions, of redefining, you know, what does it mean to be sexual at this age? What does it mean to have um, a body that's still very sensual once you start to wake her up all the way to the point where she had got herself a boyfriend that was 20 something years younger. That's so great. And she was fully like, I know. I mean, I, I I was like, if she can do it, we can all do it. And she is not unique. I've had many other clients in that age group have almost identical experiences of reclamation. And more than reclamation, I would say an inhabiting of mm. their sensuality and their sexual power. And I, I, um, I admire any and all women who choose to take that first step into deep self-respect and curiosity around who they are as human beings. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. That is beautiful. I love, 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 love that story. Um, 
when you think of your clientele, just curiously, what's that what's that age range from what age up until I know, you know, you have women in their 70s and maybe even older, but what's what's the age range that you work with? Um, well, I think typically it would be 30s to mid 50s is the bulk of my clientele. Okay. I have taught as young as 11-year-old girls and boys because there was a point where I was teaching both. Um, by the invitation of the parents who had the kind of children who are mature enough to understand these things. And the parents wanted them to have a different education than porn, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way up into now, one of my clients, she's 90, you oh, know, amazing. and so sexuality for me doesn't have an age. I often speak on professional stages around sexuality and ageism with myself and a, a colleague who's a gynecologist. We we address this issue both from a psychological and gynecological point of view. Yeah. And the importance for people to understand, if we could reframe sexuality as your aliveness and it has no age, and then we can cultivate aliveness throughout our life. And yes. when we have more aliveness, we enjoy life a lot more. And so it's it's that perspective that I like to bring to people. Yeah, and when we enjoy life more, that ripples out into everyone around us. You know, this is what I love about healing work and really you know, honing in on the essence, because once we start to explore that and bring that more into our lives, it affects our partners, our children, our neighbors, our community. And of course, the ripple effect is endless. And that is what it's all about. You know, so I think that's that's so beautiful. What inspires you? Huh. You know, many things inspire me. Um, but I have to say that when I'm in a, um, a place where I get to lead, say, a group of women into this journey, mm. invite them into this journey, they're, women are just the their power and their strength and their tenderness and their vulnerability and their willingness. Like it's, they, they so desire more than what's going on mm-hmm. and their willingness to step into the mystery and to trust, even though it's hard and they do it. Wow. That inspires me so much. And it, and it's their tenderness and the, um, the impact of social mandates, domestication on women that really inspires me because I, I want to be that voice that gives women a different possibility, hence the counterculture piece. It's yes. like, yes, I get that this is the norm and we've learned all these things, but there's another possibility. And mm. actually with my research, so when I did the dissertation, the, the, there was one piece of information that, that blew my mind. And it was, I thought that I was going for, say, um, which technique creates the best result for women. We're going to teach those ones, right? So yeah. I was measuring to see which techniques and I was measuring people who, who had learned from me and they were doing surveys, et cetera. And, um, and then my stats guy, he was like, um, did you know that you're having lasting positive transformation with women, even if they never practice? I was like, are you kidding me? This ruins everything. <laughs> But then it was good news. (laughs) But this is important for healing. Doesn't matter the modality. Hmm. Doesn't matter the the items used, crystals, chanting, 
ointments, potions, doesn't matter. The healing occurs because the person is willing to meet themselves. Mm. And no matter which modality they choose in order to have that meeting happen, it's irrelevant. As long as they're 100% in with that one thing that they're choosing. So whatever way their healing is going to unfold, we're attracted to different modalities. Great. But it's not the modality that's healing you. It's you that is healing you. So I find that really crucial to point out on the healing journey so that we don't give our power to a person or a technique or a thing because in the end, right? And I think maybe healers, one of the gifts they give people, it's like borrowed faith. Mm. And sometimes you need it. When you're in that dark night of the soul, when you're desperate and you just don't know how, the kindness, the groundedness, the the, um, open-heartedness of a healer creates a safe space that says, it is possible and I'm going to stand here with you and be on this journey with you. You are not alone. I think that is very impactful because then the person can focus on what needs to happen, which is paying attention and unraveling and and coming literally back into right relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the Mm -hmm. gift of the healer, I believe. Yeah, I think that is so well put. I mean, I often, when I'm working with clients, you know, we talk about healing is all, it's very much self-paced and we are helping, we're the catalyst to help spark that healing process, but their bodies, the way they move forward with this expression and this healing is really their, you know, their job, their responsibility, Um, equally happy to support that. Uh, But I think, I think it's really important, as you said, is coming back to self. Uh, I think that's the, that's the main thing that I work with, helping people to really connect with who they really are, who they truly are. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about the layers and the labels and the things like that, but that true, pure essence that we all have and know. Um, and sometimes, yes, because of life's ups and downs, things are become disharmonious. It's life, it's the journey. But getting back to that harmonious state is definitely about that responsibility that you want as you said before, in your healing journey, I choose to live. So I choose to heal. I choose to do something about this situation. And one of the things as a sound healer, one of the very first things we start all of our sessions with, I mean, certainly I do, and this is what I've learned to do, is to, you know, put yourself in that place where you are channeling what they need. You're taking yourself out of the situation. So, you know, may healing sound flow through me for Saida's highest good, whatever that is. I don't need to know what it is because you, you know, you know what it is. And sound is flowing through me in a way to support that. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, regardless of the modality, the healing tools or techniques. um, You know, we, we both have so many different things under our belt, but working from that intuitive space and being present for their person in front of us is really, really important. And I think that's a really good distinction to make. So that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And I have received a sound healing from you. I, I remember you did it long distance. Yeah. You did it while I was sleeping because we are many hours apart. That's right. And while you were doing the healing, do you remember while you did this healing, you got information yeah. and I had a dream identical to the information you yes. received during yes. that time. So even I was sleeping, we're 
long distance and time. And yet we both got the same information when we checked in later. And that was uh, a really important part of, you know, my, so here's what I want to say about healing. Mm. I actually want to say a poem, if you don't mind, I'd like to share this poem. It's the, it's my shortest poem. And it actually won some awards at some point in my life, but it's really relevant to what we're talking about. So here's the poem. It is through loving that we heal because in truth, there is nothing to heal, only the loving to reveal. And the reason I like this poem is, uh, is that healing to me, it sounds like something is happening. Like we're doing something to someone, Yeah. but in truth, that's not what's happening. We're just becoming congruent again. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the loving that actually, by revealing the loving, like the, the state of that frequency of deep self-respect, of, of allowing ourselves to be in right relationship, that actually writes everything that's off. Yes. Yes. And that's because we have an intelligence that just needs a little space to come back into balance. And so I wanted to share that because I've received very powerful healings from you and, um, and also how every time, even just talking to you as a friend, there's a kind of a realignment coming back Mm. into that state of deep loving that seems to rectify when I'm kind of off. (laughs) Yes. Sisterhood. It's beautiful, isn't it? I love that poem. I'm going to get that from you and I'm going to definitely put that um, somewhere on the page where this uh, podcast is going to be because I think it's such a beautiful and clear, simple and and really to the point, which I love, which is pretty much how you are. Yeah, (laughs) love that. So I know that you're an, you're an avid reader, you do a lot of, you know, you read a lot, you write a lot. And I'm just curious if there are any books out there, if you can, if there is one book that you feel has really influenced your journey so far. There's like a million books that have influenced my journey, but I have to say the work of Brené Brown, um, more so now, like if I had read it 20 years ago when I was really in the midst of my healing, they would have been powerful because I felt a little bit alone in my rebelliousness. Mm. But um, now as I read them, they're more like affirmations of my knowingness, if that makes sense. I'm like, I yeah. say that or I feel that. So it's I, I'm just grateful for how she articulates things. And I think Braving the Wilderness mm. for me has been an exceptional book that she wrote because the wilderness is your own nature. It's not the thing out there. It's your own nature. Braving your own nature, being willing to to be in that place because that's also what healing is about is we've disjointed, we've lost contact with certain facets of ourselves either because of traumas or just upbringing or or whatever. And when we brave that space, like the things we don't want to look at, we go there. The the empowerment that happens is profound and it takes courage. This stuff isn't easy. And I love that book because it's it's clear, it's honest, it's got science also in there, it's got heart in there, it's got um, invitations to explore. Uh, So I think that book is pretty wonderful. 
Yes, I'm sure there are many, but I, I really love Brene Brown as well. So I think that's awesome. That's a, it's, it's a wonderful um, book. She's a great author. Um, and so you're an author. You've got quite a few books that you've written and co-written and contributed to. Um, and I was, I was very happy to read uh, your latest book, Desire, um, which I know is available on Amazon and uh, through your website as well, I believe. Um, and the topic of desire is so interesting for me. I think reading your book, it has certainly helped me to change and grow my perspective on desire, um, how powerful it is when we harness it. And in ways that I think often when people hear the word desire, they bring it down to a very mundane level. And so I'd love to know about desire. I want you to just tell me about what that is. What's desire? Ugh. You know I love this topic. I know you do. But so, I so love hearing you talk about it. So please. Well, let's frame it like this. Because, again, unusual background, unusual way of growing up. So very early in life, we're talking early childhood, a clear experience that this thing that feels so good somehow is bad and evil and dirty. This thing that feels so natural is like currency and they're, you're using it to sell stuff. And so there was a lot of confusion mm. around that. And then reading uh, thoughts of ancient philosophers, uh, religion beliefs, like everything was pretty negative that the, the source of most human suffering is locked all the way down to desire. Mm. And in my body, Simone, in my soul, in my being, that felt wrong. There's something wrong with that. It's not my lived experience. How can this be true? So there is suffering associated with desire, but I distinguish it in the book that those are hijacked desires. And we can get into that in a minute. But what I want to talk about is here's a possibility that I offer through the book. Mm. What if we got it wrong? What if desire isn't this thing? What if it's a force of nature? Like it's just like gravity is a force of nature. What if the desire isn't static? What if it's part of the whole evolution of, of the universe where it, it's emerging and it's evolving? So that which early humans desired, we don't desire that anymore because we've evolved in every evolutionary step. The desire that was present was leading us to our next evolutionary step. And once that's complete, there's another form that appears. And so I started to consider that as a possibility. And then I thought, well, if that is a possibility, then my own, say, prime directive, because I really believe each of us is born with a genius, something that is is intelligent and has a particular gift to offer the world. And that gift unravels slowly over time. And it also evolves and emerges over time. And what if the very things that we are drawn to, that we yearn for, is like a little whisper from that prime directive. And we feel it viscerally in our body so that we notice it. Yearning mm. is actually like, can be painful, right? If you yeah. really want something deep in your heart and you're afraid you're not going to get it, ow, it's a vulnerable ache. And sometimes yearning hurts, you know, our loins. It's like, oh God, it's like aroused. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. Ow. You know, it's, so it's a visceral uh, expression, but if you go into it as a force and you start to understand it's calling you to something and you start getting 
curious about it and you lean in and you ask your heart what deeply matters, well, that's information. That's a clue to the um, journey that's unfolding that is unique to you. It's a powerful journey. It's, it's a journey that matters. Every human life matters. And the things you deeply yearn for profoundly matter. Yeah. And every choice you make, whether conscious or unconscious, has impact. So if we can start aligning our actions with the truth of our deep, deep yearning, then we start to shape a very integrous path that may be unusual to others, but it's sure. true for us. We need that, that innovative side, the things that are, we have our history for consistency. We have structures for consistency, but the way evolution works is new ideas come forward. I mean, years ago, there was no such thing as jumping on Zoom and looking at each other and having a conversation. We were hooked to a wall like to talk. And years before that, we had to write letters because it was the only way to communicate. And years before that, there was no communication other than maybe telepathy or something. So, <laughs> so there has been an evolution <laughs> uh, around desire. Now let's go to hijack desires just to be really clear. So how does that happen? Mm. So let's take love, for example, because love is something most of us can relate to. And at some point in our life, there is usually a calling toward love. We want to be in love. We want to experience love. That's a natural, human, beautiful desire. But that desire can get hijacked. And the way it's hijacked, for example, for me, my first husband was hijacked love because he fit my list. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to be in love, but I had this list. It had to be, actually, he had to be black. He had to have dreadlocks. He had to make six figures, drive a Lexus, like on and on and on, like be a tantric master, Taoist master. Like I had this list and what I found one. What a list. <laughs> I know. And he, he made all the check marks. He was like Superman, you know, I was like, woo, I have scored here. And he asked me to marry him even better. Right. Right. The marriage lasted. Well, I did. I did say forever. Mm -hmm. Trust me, forever ended up being like 30 days. (laughs) (laughs) So So, long forever that. (laughs) Yeah. But here's what happened. My desire for deep love was hijacked by social mandates of we are conditioned to want what we want. We don't actually question what we want a lot of the times. And usually what we want is what we've been, we've learned to want. Because mm. we watch other people, we listen to the media, we, we, you know, we should have this and we should have that. And so that becomes the things we want. But underneath that is the true desire for deep love. But on top of that is the hijacked version, right? Can you see the difference? Yeah. And so when I go for the hijacked version, there's no possibility of real fulfillment because it's not my yearning. These are my conditioned yearnings. Had someone pointed this out to me years ago, I probably would not have married this man. I probably would have slowed things down, but I didn't because I was living according to these mandates. Yeah. And I learned from it, thank goodness, you know, there's a learning in that. So I don't want to erase that. But the beautiful thing of the book is it offers a clear way of like, there's six different desire songs, Mm -hmm. eros, love, procreation, thriving, 
rapture, which is a spiritual desire contribution. And it takes you through those and it explains what's the true nature of that calling and how does it get hijacked and what can we do about it? And that turns me on like a lot, a lot, because this means that more and more people will literally practice freedom. They'll start to live life on their own terms and in alignment with that deep genius and that is so exciting because although I don't understand it, mm-hmm. I believe there's a vast intelligence that's working through us all and that your genius and mine, if we deeply express it, contribute to the wellness of all on this planet. And that's how it's designed, even though so I don't beautiful. totally understand why it's designed like that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on and ask you so many questions, just taking so much from what you've just shared. One of them would have been, what are some of the steps that we can take? But instead, what I'm going to say is go out and buy Saida's book. I've read it. I love it. It's amazing. It's on Amazon. You have to go get it if you want to know how to tell the difference between that hijacked desire and then that the true essence, the true desire, looking at all the different practical ways and the, the stories and journeys through that. Um, and find find that authentic space for yourself so that you can be that joyous expression of desire that we all have within us. So I love, 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 um, you know, your work and your story and everything. I love you as a person, as a friend, as a sister doing great work and, you know, doing what you do to heal the world and make an impact. And anyone that wants to connect with you or find out more about you can find you on your website at drsaidadesile.com. And on the social media platforms. Yeah, it's it's um I'm gonna interrupt because that URL doesn't exist. Oh, is it so Saida it would be Desilet. Dare Your Desire? Okay. Saida Desilet, but also that's a hard one like on podcasts. So Dare Your Desire is a lot easier. It's the same website, dareyourdesire.com. Dareyourdesire.com. Love that. So that's the one yeah. that I'm gonna put underneath. Dareyourdesire.com and on the social media platforms as well. Yes. Um, yeah. So social media would be my name at Saida Desley or at Dr. Saida Desley. There's different ones. That's fine. We'll, we'll get all the links and put it. So don't worry. We'll get all of that on there. And for, for the book, I also want to offer, so desirethebook.com is where you can find out about it and where to get it. Fabulous. And depending on which country you're in, like which, how to get the, the best kind of shipping costs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there's also desirethebook.club. And in that, there's all these free resources. You can get a playbook, which allows you to personalize your journey through the book. There's four and a half hours of videos where I um, took my community through exploring the book and answering their questions. There's free meditations you can download. So it's just a really great resource to make this more real for yourself. Thank you. Well, I'll make sure I get all of those details from you so that everyone listening can grab it all. And so I have one final question for you, and that is, what is your soulful sound to the world? And that is, what is your self-prayer or desire that you wish upon the world? Mm. Such a beautiful question, Simone. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's, it's fairly simple. It's really inhabiting our body and inhabiting graciousness, grace, and curiosity. I think if if each of us would do that, we would actually radically change how we relate to one another and how we create together. Beautiful. Well, may our may our soulful sounds 
come true, right? May that just spread out into the world and create what a, what a beautiful existence for us all. Thank you so much for your love, for your time. Dr. Saida Desile, thanks for joining us and I'll see you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share it with your friends and remember to subscribe. From my heart to yours, sending you love, healing, and sound wherever you are.